and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So do you uh, believe in miracles? Well, do you? Really? It seems that most people actually do believe in miracles. Well, that is, if you equate miracles with a fantastic win at a sporting event. It's true, if you Google miracles, that's the most common uh, thing that will come up, is the miracle, of course, of 1980, the speaking of the great hockey team, uh, defeat over Russia, but then, of course, uh, it's now used all the time in common parlance uh, for a fantastic and, and unexpected win in athletics. Well, so do you believe in miracles? I'm not talking about that. Well, but it's true. Believing in miracles is somewhat common still. Holding these beliefs is not limited to certain age groups, for instance, nor is it restricted to certain religious denominations or affiliations. For instance, there was a survey done in 2007 and, and a survey of almost 36,000 Americans, age 18 through 70 plus, and they found that 78% of people under the age of 30 believed in miracles and 79% among those who were older than 30. Pretty close. It's not a generational belief. And also, you can see the same thing going on throughout even the different religions. Almost every religion believes in miracles. Even physicians, scientists believe in miracles. 74% of physicians, for instance, believe in miracles. And yet, do you really believe in miracles? Or particularly the miracle as revealed through Christ? We too often fail, you see, to understand what a miracle really is. Is it just a divine coincidence? Is it just an amazing feat that we want to describe in some fantastic way? What is it? What was meant to be accomplished? What are we meant to, be, to understand when we read about these incredible testimonies in Scripture of Christ and his miracles? More than objective proof of God's existence, as some would want to make them. More even than, than just evidence that God can and wants to heal us. I wonder if we really understood, particularly here, Matthew's presentation of miracles. Well, I think we would understand, along with Frederick Buchner, it is not the objective proof of God's existence that we want. It's the experience of God's presence that is the great miracle defined and described here in these passages. Let's ask God now to open our minds, no matter what context of miracle believing you may be, or maybe you don't believe in miracles. Let's ask God to open our minds and our hearts, because we do know, as we will see, that 
saving faith is perhaps the grandest of all miracles. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would come here now, that you come into every room where those are seated watching this and participating in this worship. You'd come to us downstairs in our newly formed chapel fellowship hall, that you would now descend. Give us, Lord, we pray that incredible miracle of divine presence that brings about a new creation in our lives and in our world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, real quickly, I'm just going to trace you through. You know, we need to go to the text. I don't want you to hear me say these things coming out of my own philosophy or thoughts or philosophy of ministry. Let's just look at a, a couple of things for a moment in the text and see what you might find. It's interesting how coming off the Sermon on the Mount that we move directly to this testimony of miracles. Clearly, they are miracles that might have happened in various times. Other Gospels, for instance, will show some of these same miracles in other times. That's not the point. Don't ever forget that, that the, that the Gospels are not a chronological history. This is not a historian writing. This is a theologian writing. There is a theology to his presentation of the real facts of Christ's life, but he carefully choreographs those facts in order to teach us something. And, of course, what is he teaching us? We know if you've been involved in these sermon series thus far in Matthew, the first thing that should come to your mind is this, this is gospel that's focused on the meaning of Christ, the great divine human messianic, that is kingdom bringing king. This is all about the kingdom of God, so much so that, that throughout Matthew, he wants to make clear, though, it's the coming of the kingdom of God from a source, not of this world. And so Matthew changes the term that others use in other Gospels, kingdom of God, to kingdom of heaven, over and over again. You see, Matthew groups these miracles with little concern for the exact time and place when compared to the other Gospels. The cleansing of the leper and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, according to Mark and Luke, both were prior to the Sermon of the Mount. But again... It's the difference in the way you compare the Gospels and the way they are different that actually is good news for you because it's helpful because it helps us understand, now what is Matthew wanting to say here? And distinction, say, from what Luke was wanting to say from the very same facts of history. So here's where we go to the passage itself. And we ask, what does this passage teach us other than mere history? Well, notice first that two things are different about the episode such that by comparison we know what the focus is not. That is, the method of healing are different in each episode that we just read. Therefore, the focus is not on methodology. For instance, in verse 3, stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, and be made clean. And he talks about being made clean. Immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Verse 13, the centurion, go, let it be done to you according to your faith. He doesn't touch this person at all. And the servant was healed in that very hour and in other place. 15, he touched her hand, and immediately the fever left. Matthew is not recording methods which will promote healing or giving directions in any way about how people can be healed. Notice, secondly, the religious character or disposition of those healed is different in every episode. The focus, therefore, is not 
was not upon the recipient's faith. That's really interesting if you're familiar with some use of miracles today. For instance, the leper believes Jesus has power to heal, but the centurion believes Jesus has authority to command, but his servant and and the religious character of faith of the servant is not even mentioned. Nothing at all is said about Peter's mother-in-law, either good or bad. And those possessed of demons, well, clearly they don't have faith. Matthew is not recording instructions about the relationship between faith and healing. It's not his concern. Well, with those two things stated out front, what is he concerned about? Well, again, here we look for the things that are in common with all of these different episodes. And there are particularly two things that are common to all episodes, which gives us a clue as to what the intention of Matthew is in presenting these testimonies. First of all, notice that people are unmistakably and incurably ill. They are desperate and hopeless in situation. Leprosy was a hideous disease incurable by any known remedies and so odious in appearance and smell that it came to be symbolized as that of the pollution of sin and was treated even ceremonially in the Old Testament church. Ceremonially, that is, as unclean. It was not even contagious. The paralytic was in some sense suffering terribly. It goes on to say here in our text that that it's not just that he was paralyzed, but it was terribly tortured. And in a state of absolute desperateness. And of course the fever, the malarial fevers that were common around the marshes during that time, at the time were uncurable. So the people are unmistakably and incurably ill. There's a kind of deafness to what we are hearing. And secondly, what is shared in common in all these these instances is Jesus is the only one who can heal each of these persons fully or comprehensively. The passage literally goes out of its way to emphasize five specific things about these miracles so that you will see that Jesus and Jesus alone is able to comprehensively deliver these people. Therefore, they are five truths, if you will, which somehow relate finally to the conclusion of our passage, which wants to relate everything that's just said in these testimonies. And Matthew wants us to understand that is in fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy. And he quotes them there in Isaiah 53. So that's that's amazing. Matthew's doing everything he can if we would just stop and slow down and not handpick a scripture out of it and notice what he's trying to do. And you will know what it is he wants us to take from it today. So let me go into those things, these five uh, observations you see here uh, about how Jesus is the only one comp- you know, able to do it. Notice, for instance, they're all miracles by Jesus or Christ's own power. Verse 2, if you are willing, you are able. That's that's how the first of all of them are introduced. If you're willing, you are able. That is, you are powerful enough. And Jesus says, as I will or I desire, therefore be healed. In other words, every other worker that you'll see, even in the scripture, but much less in the world, every other worker of miracles in the Old or New Testament constantly 
ascribes the power and the glory to another when they do a miracle. It is the very epitome of of hypocrisy or the epitome of of unorthodoxy for anyone to take upon himself or herself the power of creation or recreation activity the way Jesus is. That's actually what killed him. That's what it was that infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees. There was no doubt about it that the life and testimony of Jesus was a life and testimony that Jesus is God, exercising his power and his authority. Verse 3, he touched him and immediately, it goes out of its way to give you this, and immediately this person was saved. Not something that happened tomorrow, the next day, or the next day progressively, but immediately he was totally healed. Verse 13, the servant was healed at that moment. You see what the, the focus is? And then the fever left her and she got up. Immediately, she got up. Even the, the person that was far away, it said, within that hour, he gave a command way over here, and within that hour over there, this person is, is reported as being healed. Matthew clearly wants us to have no doubt that it was Jesus who did this, and by a power that is of heaven, that is not of this world, in keeping with his theme, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus brings salvation to the world by his own power and authority to recreate Not by any cultivation of some inherent natural abilities in the creation or natural healing processes, but by his power. Notice, secondly, how the miracles are also very clearly ascribed to God's or Christ's own desire or graciousness. Verse 3, I am willing. Verse 7, I will come. This language is repeated over and over. The centurion's humble acknowledgement of unworthiness, and yet Jesus heals his servant. There's this kind of focus on the graciousness of God, a a willingness to take upon himself the affirmatizes and the diseases of the world. It's not a burden to him. It's not a burden to him. You know I'm going to come back to all of this, right? (laughs) We're going to really mind this in our lives, but just notice it first of all from the text. Thirdly, these miracles are comprehensive. They're presented to to be shown to extend even to the physical effects of sin. You know, in other passages, particularly in John's gospel, often instead of, uh, you know, saying stand and be healed or something like that, it's your sins are forgiven and the person is healed. There's this very intimate relationship being derived here. How there is a relationship between sin, the curse uh, that's in the world due to that sin, and the manner in which Christ now is reversing that curse. All of these things were to be regarded as symbolically teaching the dreadful pollution of sin and the need of purification. You think about that. It's comprehensive. It's holistic. Body and spirit. The miracles are inclusive. The text also makes sure he tells you stories. There are many other miracles he could have have chronicled here. But he makes sure you you see that it's not just insiders of the Old Covenant Church that are being saved, but outsiders that are being healed. Particularly in verse 11, many, it says, and it's, it's docking all these 
in relationship then to these healings. Many from the east and the west will come and recline with Abraham. The centurion himself was a Gentile of another nation. The leper was unclean, someone who was ceremonially outside of the church, Old Testament church of that day. And special status as God's covenant people is being extended to all nations then and all ethnicities and inclusive of all kinds of sins. There is no sin, no gender, no race, no ethnicity that excludes you from from what Christ here is bringing into the world in relationship to the kingdom of God. Finally, miracles could and would mislead. Notice verse 4. See to it that you do not tell, but show yourselves to the priests and offer the gift of Moses commanded as evidence to them. It's interesting that when the false expectations uh, that, were, that were circulating around in the coming of, of, of in the first century when Christ came, the, 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 by far the dominant expectation of the Messiah, so much as it is today, you might argue, is to see Messianism as a political movement. Over and over and over again, Christ re, you know, rejected that interpretation. Here, the, the focus is go to the temple. And proclaim what has happened to you. This is not go to somewhere else. It's, it's very carefully wanting to be tied to something that the temple is about. In God's presence. You see with all these false expectations the Messiah would raise up a political kingdom. Much of what Jesus was about in his state of humiliation was confusing to them. Therefore, this prohibition to keep secret his identity and the time had come so as not to hinder his ministry, this time was to be revealed only after his resurrection and ultimately his ascension. I could give you a lot of backstory to this statement, but, but it's related to the fact that even as, as we approach the day of, of the cross where Christ enters into Jerusalem and is descending upon the great Mount Zion, remember the, the day when they took out the palm branches and and hallelujah, the Messiah has come. You see, he didn't want that to happen prematurely. That is, before the cross could interpret it. Because what they would be doing is anointing him as a political king. It was not time for him to reveal his kingly authority, lest it be abused in a politicized way. His incarnation came, as you know, in humiliation. His incredible kingly power was here to be a suffering servant, even as he was coming to usher into a new reality of new creation order, which these great uh, miracles want to testify. And so that brings us to the final statement of Matthew here in verse 18 where the mystery of the miracles is totally unveiled. And to do that, somehow we have to ask the question, why did he choose Isaiah? And particularly Isaiah 52 and 53, the very passage we heard read today. Note, when, whenever a gospel or even an epistle in the New Testament quotes an Old Testament passage, the assumption then was that you did good exegesis. You didn't pull out a sentence. You understood the sentence in the context of the whole. 
If you were to go back and read Isaiah's prophecy, here's some of the things that you would discover that make total sense of why now Christ, this otherwise suffering, humiliated, not so spectacular person, is now being revealed through his great miracles to be the Messiah King. Isaiah 53 clearly depicts this ironic ministry that when the Messiah comes, he will not be recognized as such. He won't come in the way in which the world would expect such a mighty appearance of God. In Isaiah 52, 14, for instance, just as there were many who were astonished, astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. You see, this idea that he was not recognizably exalted king. He came in suffering clothes. Clearly also, this language, I literally tried to, to emphasize it earlier in our, our description, but this language, I am able, or he is able, and then I am willing, or he is willing, these two phrases come right out of Isaiah 52 and 53. In 52, Isaiah says, the Lord has bared or unveiled his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. This bear his holy arm, his power is manifest. And then in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will, the will, the desire, don't underestimate that word. It was his desire to do this. Clearly, it depicts the salvation of the Messiah as being inclusive of all the nations in that prophecy. 52.10, the Lord has bared his holy arms before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And it's a, and it's a salvation that, again, is comprehensive. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried out our, and cured our diseases. That's what's quoted here, of course. And yet... And yet, the same one who does this is the one whom, and I quote again from that same verse 4 of Isaiah 53, and yet we see him as stricken and as struck down by God and afflicted. So the afflicted one is curing the world's afflictions. The humble one is curing the humble. This is amazing. I mean, just think about how, how counterintuitive that is and how counterprevailing that is. When we look for someone to save us, we typically look with the lens of those who are the great orators or the great financiers or the great powers backed by great militaries or any of these sorts of things. Those with great wealth. And here he comes, just the opposite of it. So much so that when, when the Apostle Paul was in a contention with, with the Corinthian people, the Corinthians had gotten misled as to who would, what would a true prophet of God look like. And they envisioned a guy that would be coming into a town as a, with a great entourage behind him. They envisioned a guy that was a great orator, because in that day, particularly in Corinth, oration was a, a great skill that was attributed to all great leaders. They attributed to him that he would have great wealth and great influence and great power with this world. You know, the kind of feeling you get, I don't know, when, I don't know, when you see a graduation ceremony and all the pomp of all that. Or when you, 
when you look at a great you know, parade of a political figure and all the pomp of that, that's what they expect. And what does Paul do? He says, I don't come to you like that. In fact, quite the contrary. Every, I don't even, you know, my words are not with human words of wisdom. You know, he goes on to say that, that I come not to you pre- preaching with great rhetorical skill. I preach nothing but save, save Christ and him crucified. And he goes on and explains that. He says, what I mean by that is that my resume is that I share in the afflictions and the sufferings and the humiliations of Christ. I share in the commission that he gave to me to bear the cross with me. And he did it in order that he might direct them to what? To that place where sin and its curse is finally judged and cursed forever. He does that to direct us to how it is that God in the Messiah is going to heal us comprehensively by first putting to death our sin. The mortification of Christ is the emphasis of his incarnation. It's not until he speaks of his ascension that we get to the lordship and the great power and authority. But here in a miracle, what's happening is there's a breaking in. There's like a veil. And just for a moment, it's just going to open just a little bit. And you look into that veil, and there you see the exalted king sitting on a throne, recreating the world, undoing the curse, healing and bringing new creation into the world. What's the take home? Remember, what is this whole book about? The whole book of Matthew is trying to tell us For those who have participated in the sermon series, we know what that is. It's all about the kingdom of heaven and what it is like. In this passage, Matthew's not concerned about methods. In this passage, Matthew's not concerned about instructions as a philosophy of ministry. Matthew is telling us something about Christ, the king, and the kind of kingdom he wants to establish. So what did we learn? Number one, that Christ himself is the miracle. He's the miracle. He was what was unbelievable, that such a one would come as a suffering servant, a humble one bearing the curse that needed to be satisfied, the curse against all sin, that original sin of rejecting the creator himself and therefore rejecting life, the source of all that creation. Christ himself is the miracle. We need to fix everything that is broken about our lives and world. Only he can do that. Every other fixes it best temporary until our death. Only he can comprehensively fix all the stuff that we know needs fixing. It starts with the miracle of his incarnation. Christ is the miracle. God with us by means of a miraculous birth from the seed of a woman. And the Holy Spirit blows your mind. It continues with the miracle of his life, God with us to deliver us from the evil and all its horrid consequences as we've seen in the brokenness, as we've seen in this passage, Jesus is the miracle. This is the point. Don't miss Jesus because we so quickly get warped into ourselves and and our own benefit from what we're reading. Well, our own benefit is that God is with us and he is going to fix everything. Again, number two, Christ's miracle is not so much supernatural as it is super anti-natural. 
Now, I'm obviously playing a lot with you because I want you to notice that. I'm going to say it one more time. Let's see if you can figure it out real quick. Christ's miracle is not so much supernatural as it is super anti-natural. See, what is happening here in these episodes? What do we see happening? Yes, it is true that Christ's miracles relied on a power that is not of this world or what we may know as natural power insofar as we understand natural power right now. It was, in that sense, you could say supernatural. That is a beyond nature as we now experience it from heaven to earth, even as this is the defining characteristic of the kingdom of, of God for Matthew. And yet, and yet, this is a nature as we know it now, post-fall, post-curse. Remember, pre-fall, there was no disease. There was no brokenness. There was no rebellion. There was no, ultimately, distance between humanity and God. There was perfect presence, living in the living and life-giving presence of the divine, whose spirit was hovering over the garden at all times. It's post-fall nature that's being overturned but overturned in a way that restores pre-fall, and I guess you could say post-resurrection nature. I mean, this is why the scripture is so consistent, you see. In every salvific event, both in the Old and New Testament, and I certainly don't have time to show you that right now, I'd love to, but whether you're talking about the flood, whether you're talking about the exodus, whether you're talking about other events done by the judges, et cetera, et cetera, they're all defined as a recreation event. What's happening here, folk, are that, that God is recreating the world. You see that in Revelations. Strange, isn't it, how the way that, that, that John introduces the final chapter of the history of redemption, that, his, that chapter that will be eternal, that will never end. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the words, the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. When you read Revelations, it's like, it's, it's defined here as the beginning of God's creation. Later in chapter 22, he's going to define all the great salvation history culminating in the, in the return to the Garden of Eden, where there's the tree of life, and everyone there is eating of it. This is what Augustine meant, the great Saint Augustine, 5th century. He says, miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature right now. You see, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, and, and to a degree it is a suspension of the fallen natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration, you see, of natural order. This is the greatest conservationist in the world, you could say. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease and hunger and death. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but, but a wonderful foretaste, 
a wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds. We so, in our, honestly, our ego and arrogance try so desperately to, to define our unbelief as if it's a mental problem. That's not the problem. The problem is, as we'll see, the greatest miracle of all, other than the miracle of Christ, is the miracle of faith. Where every time Paul will describe it in terms that are new creation terms, that we are given a new eyes and new ears to hear and to see. And so the miracles of Christ ought not to be read and interpreted as the instructions of the church of a divine operations manual or philosophy of ministry plan. It's true, miracles are given in order to strengthen faith. For instance, in John 2, 23, many people saw the miracle signs and he was going and believed in his name. And yet, now I want you to listen to this little section because you might think I'm off on a tangent, but I'm not. And yet we see in Christ's teaching that it is evidence of stronger, more mature faith not to seek signs and wonders. To believe without needing a miracle. Why? Because it's a testimony that really it's the belief in Christ, the belief in God, the the willingness to submit ourselves to him is not because we have a lack of miracles. Even if we had the miracle of the sign of Jonah, Jesus said to the Pharisees. After the Pharisees would try him and test him and say, do this miracle, do this miracle, trying to get him to a miracle he couldn't do. He said, even if you saw the sign of Jonah, and of course we know what that sign is, reading backwards, it's the sign of the resurrection. Even then, you won't believe. It's not a problem of mind. There's more than enough evidence to suggest in the existence of God. There's more than enough evidence, if you just look at it objectively, to see that something happened cataclysmic in the first century that changed the world. And what happened was something that before that ascension of Christ and Pentecost was just an obscure, tiny, little, humble movement sect of a Jewish club. No. It's interesting. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. We see over and over again Christ affirming that kind of faith that doesn't rely on miracles beyond the miracle of Christ himself. Christ himself is enough. He said to Thomas, for instance, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. In other words, he believed. And then Jesus says this, which kind of goes, scratch your head. But he said, have you believed because you have seen me? <laughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Again, Jesus visited the Samaritans, and because of his words, it said, no miracles, words, many more became believers. And then just a few verses later, to make sure you get the point, John tells us how, John, how Jesus rebukes the Galileans. He says, unless you people see miracles, signs, and wonders, you will never believe. Unlike the Samaritans, the people of Galilee. So why do we seek miracles? I think some people seek miracle after signs and wonders because they do not believe the signs and wonders which have already been performed. They've already rejected. There's already a disposition. That disposition that's the real problem. 
Jesus has been performing miracles for quite some time with a group of scribes and Pharisees came to him and with an insolent demand to see another sign. In response, Jesus condemned them and said, wicked and adulterous generation, those who would seek signs and wonders, that the sign and wonder of Jesus Christ himself wasn't enough. They looked for signs of their own devising, he said. So entrenched was their rejection of Christ that when later presented with the sign of the prophet of Jonah, as I've said, they still wouldn't believe. Some people may seek signs and wonders because they seek an occasion to excuse their unbelief. There are people in Jesus' day, for instance, who tested him, we're told, by seeking a sign. Since they specified that the sign be from heaven, they were obviously looking for something very spectacular. Probably their test was designed to be something too big for Jesus to accomplish. Some people sought signs in the scriptures after signs and wonders because they are curious, thrill seekers, we're told. I'm not making any of this up. You can go to the scriptures, I've got them quoted here. Like the crowds in John 6 2 and, and King Herod in Luke 23, they want to see something sensational. But they have no real desire to humble themselves and put themselves at the mercy of, of this Jesus. Some people seek signs and wonders because they hope to get something for themselves. Okay, that's honest. After Jesus fed the multitudes, a large crowd followed him to the other side of Galilee, and Jesus saw their true motivation. However, and he rebuked it. He rebuked it. Now, I'm going to be careful here. I'm going to explain this, so hold on. I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. What's going on there? It's those who seek signs and wonders because... They've been misguided to believe that their problem is so minimal as to be cured of, say, a disease. You see, what he's rebuking here is, don't you see? These were meant to be signs. It's not the end to have a temporary healing on earth. Only to be erupted by death. What Jesus was rebuking is not that they are hungering and thirsting and desiring new creation and for, all the, for someone to fix all the ills and the diseases and the problems and the curse and the injustices and the lack of love and all that's in the world. No, that is a natural and good and praiseworthy hunger. Come, Lord Jesus. But that's the prayer of the true hunger. It's the come, Lord Jesus prayer. He rebuked them because... They had missed the greatest miracle of all, Jesus the Christ, and failing to receive him. Such examples as these led the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards, and pastor, I should say, he says this about the miracles. He says, prophecy and miracles argue the imperfection of the state of a church that asks for them, rather than its perfection. For they are means designed by God as a stay or a support or as a leading string to the church in its infancy rather than as a means adapted to its full growth. Boy, does this have some pastoral implications when we pray and we pray for healing as we ought to pray. But do we pray for comprehensive healing? A kind of healing that might put to death certain idols of our own destruction by not healing us, that we might be truly healed and partakers of the eternal healing of God into eternity where there will be no disease or ailments. This is incredible. 
And so that leads me to my final point. It's clear that the greatest miracle of all, second only to the miracle of Jesus Christ, is saving faith. There is nothing so incurable as disbelief, so incurable as original sin, that innate desire to not put ourselves in the mercy of our God. We will do everything with every rationalization to avoid doing it. It truly is an incredible miracle in the words of Christ to be born again. That's the way the scripture defines saving faith. Later in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, what do the people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And he said, well, some say, and they went through this whole litany of things. And then he responded to them, none of them being, they don't see you as really the divine human Messiah who brings in a new creation order. And here's what he said. He says then to the disciples, but well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, he spoke up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The greatest of all Christ, of Christ's miracles is that miracle of faith. His miracles, to be sure, were designed to direct us not to the miracle themselves as if they were the end game, but they were signs to direct us to Christ who is the end game, who will bring a kingdom order depicted by these very miracles of comprehensive and holistic healing with this new faith comes a new moral compass. Paul describes it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in his Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old passed away, beyond the new has come. A moral disposition that fundamentally changes. Still struggles, but changes. A new identity, according to Galatians 6. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Where he goes on to say there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He goes through ethnicity, he goes through gender, he goes through class. And he says these identities, these, these political identities are one thing. But, but you, your ultimate identity in faith is a new creation. That's what led again Augustine to say, I have never, I never have any difficulty believing in miracles since I experienced the miracle of a change in my own heart. I could go on, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, you can read it. Paul gives you a treatise on this subject of saving faith and how it is that it's of God by the Spirit, a miracle. So from Matthew's perspective, the miracles tell us all about finally what kind of person Christ is, that you would want to believe in him. 
You know, kids, if you're listening, maybe on the Zoom, you could say it in different ways. That is, you know, how great your parents are. One way to say is, my parents are great. But another way is to tell the stories about things your parents do. I can remember as a kid, young kid, got a little older, I didn't do it as much, but when I was a young kid, sitting around on a playground, and we would find ways to boast of our parents. Maybe you remember those days too, telling them what they did. You see, that's the other way. You would tell all the stories about things your parents do in order for your friends to say, wow, your parents are really great. That's all a miracle is. That's what a miracle is supposed to be. Wow, Jesus is really great. That's the point when you read a miracle. Don't get sidetracked. Jesus is great. How sad that we would misread and we go off into all these circumlocutions of mental struggle and do I believe in miracles? Do I not believe in miracles? What is a miracle? What is it? And all the stuff that we do in seminary. We just miss the point. Jesus is the miracle, which makes the greatest miracle of all is that he gives you a will to want him. It's the only reason you don't have him. I'm telling you this. I can go to scripture after scripture and show you this. You don't not want him because it's intellectually difficult. You don't want him because you don't want him. That's what's got to change. God has got to give that change. And so behold your Jesus, if you're here as a skeptic. Listen to these things and say, wow, is that the kind of Messiah that our world needs? Who can fix everything, body and spirit. May God give you the gift of saving faith. Amen.